The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into Stephen King's epic The Dark Tower. This podcast is dedicated to discussion and analysis of The Dark Tower, a seven-book series written by the prolific American story-slinger Stephen King. Say thank you, Cy. In this episode, Derek and Steve are going to tackle the first half of the third book, The Wastelands. Hello, stranger, he thought. Hello, old friend. I never believed in you, not really. I believe Alan did, and I know that Cuthbert did. Cuthbert believed in everything. But I was the hard-headed one. I thought you were only a tale for children. Another wind which blew around in my old nurse's hollow head before finally escaping her jabbering mouth. But you were here all along, another refuge of the old times, like the pump at the way station and the old machines under the mountains. Are the slow mutants who worship those broken remnants the final descendants of the people who once lived in this forest and finally fled your wrath? I don't know. We'll never know. But it feels right. Yes. And then I came with my friends, my deadly new friends, who are becoming so much like my deadly old friends. We came, weaving our magic circle around us and around everything we touch, strand by poisonous strand, and now here you lie at our feet. The world has moved on again, and this time, old friend, it's you who've been left behind. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're here with another installment of The Midnight Myth Presents, The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into Stephen King's epic book series, The Dark Tower. With you again is your host, Derek, and the co-host, Steve. Steve, how are you feeling, brother? Oh, very, very well. I'm excited for this. It feels like forever. It feels like we haven't done this in a while, but it's, it's been, only been a few weeks It's a month. It's been a little while, yeah. a little longer than we anticipated. It's a big book. It's a big book, and life is life. big. Life, life is really busy right it's now for both of us. We, uh, we wanted to tweak the format a little bit. We realized going into book three, The Wastelands, that the book is Mammoth, Mm -hmm. and we decided we're going to break up this into a two-parter. So this is part one of The Wastelands, where we are talking book one. So The Wastelands is structured in that there is the book, The Wastelands, and then there are two books within The Wastelands, and they roughly correspond to 50% of the book. Mm -hmm. So Steve and I have read the first half of the book, and we're going to talk only about the first half of the book. We've both read the full book before, so we know where it's going, but we're going to try to contain where it's going and just focus specifically on book one of book three, The Wastelands. Yeah. Hopefully I didn't confuse everybody. No, no, I don't think so. It was concise. Um, Raining me in. I, I am, I'm so pumped. <laughs> I'm so, so pumped so to do I. this. I'm excited. This is a great book. This I know is I, a great book. I've asked the other two... I've asked in the other two episodes, I've asked this question, and I want to ask it of it of you. Again, second time through, you're reading The Wastelands. Does this hold up to your memory from the first time? Better, worse, or the same? Funny enough, this one, a little bit better. Not as much as the first two, especially this first book. Um, it, it felt much different the second time around, knowing what was going to happen. I was very excited for it. I think I'm more excited for the second book of a second piece of this book that's the piece that really interests me the first time around but i have to say uh, that that is you know not to say that we should shy away from the first part of this book it's amazing so i've had a lot of fun reading it but it didn't pique my interest this first time around as much as the first two books 
That's fair. Yeah. For me, now, do you think there's a specific reason or is it a general feeling or sense? Um, no, I think, I think it has to do with some of the character development, which we'll get into with, with specific characters. Um, and I, I just felt there were a couple of moments in the book, especially early on, that I thought were not well-earned and we, we could have taken a little bit more from. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm excited to get into yeah. those. Yeah. For me, I felt the second time around, the thing that stuck out the most to me in the first half is how not a Western this book is. Sure. This book feels like they've transitioned into fantasy for a good portion of it. I feel like I'm reading something that's more Tolkien than it is more gunslingery, if that makes sense. I completely agree. And because... I connect to the fantasy genre just intuitively. It's one of my favorite genres. I ravenously devoured this first book. In our reread, you have been ahead of me in terms of the page count. This was the only time that I got ahead of you. This is true. You were way ahead of me. This is true. And I'm like, mostly that's because you were super busy in life. But also, like, I could not put this book down. Right. I was into it. I was, like like peeling a hundred pages every day to half or two. I, I went right through it. So I really was, I was shocked about how much I enjoyed mm. this one more than I did the first time around, which has been my general experience of this reread. Sure. And would you say that that's because it leans more toward fantasy or is there anything in you know particular that, that strikes you about it? A, it leans more towards fantasy and we're starting to feel that this world is being built and fleshed out. It feels like there's a coherent mythology seeping through the pages. I'm starting to learn things about guardians and beams. Right. The words that Roland used start tracing back to meanings. Well, and it's interesting that you bring up the guardians because that's one of the pieces I thought at this point in time where we are now fell a little flat. We, we learn about them sort of, but we'll get into that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm also like, I'm a sucker for a good story about a boy against the world. Sure. And this is so much about Jake and Jake going to school and school sucking and his parents sucking and nobody understanding him. And I really, really loved that element of it because that just reminded of me in middle school being like, fuck everybody. I just wanted to cut school and go read books about choo-choo trains. (laughs) And Jake gets to do that. And so I really connected with that and saw myself at my younger self in the character, Jake. Yeah, man, that's beautiful. Well, so let's jump into the little more meat and potatoes, sure. a little more specific. Again, if you guys haven't read the book yet, what are you doing listening to this podcast? We're going to spoil <laughs> the living fuck out of it. But hopefully everyone listening is a dark tower diehard and you're reading along with us. Just a quick aside, if you're not or you want to get caught up, you can go to www.midnightmyth.com and there we have a link there. You can get two free audiobooks. So if you're looking for a way to read with us, go on there, download the books. My first read through The Dark Tower was through Audible, and it was an awesome experience. Highly recommend it. While you're there, we have some amazing Wheel of Ka t-shirts. Yes. The merch store is live. So www.midnightmyth.com. Guys, we're not trying to exploit anyone. This takes time and money. Mm -hmm. We'd love to make a little of that back. It would help us do more content. So please do that. And let us know what you think. Leave us a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up at Twitter, at The Midnight Myth. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. But really, it's Twitter and the website are the ones that are the most important. Mm. Not to poo-poo Facebook and Instagram. No. But those are the ones that are most important. Anyway, (laughs) let's dive in. 
Yes. So I'll give my little background as I normally do just about the books in case there is anyone out there who hasn't read the books or who doesn't know this about them. So again, this is the third book in the series uh, and it was published in 1991. So quite a bit of time after the drawing of the three. Uh, and refresh my memory, not to interrupt. When was drawing of the three? It was I, in the eighties. I right? believe it was in the eighties. So we're, yes. we're a little less than a decade. Right. Okay. Right. And then again, it was republished in 2003 for the release of the fifth book, the wolves of the Kala. So he, you know, to get people reinterested in it, it, it was updated and printed again in 2003. And I believe the copy that we're both reading is that iteration. Gotcha. He goes back and changes some things in the later books uh, or, or excuse me, the earlier books as he's writing the later books, he went back and revised some things. He's added a bunch. So this is a little bigger than the original 91 version. Um, so yeah, that's just a little bit of background. Love it. So, you know, Stephen King now is a mega superstar. Yeah. You know, he's, he's the king in, in all sense of the word at this point. And you get that feeling reading this book that oh, he yeah. is really in full on. He's I, know, I know how to write. Yes. I'm, I've been doing it for a while. I think he's also a bit sober at this point as well. He's, he's kind of cleaned his act up a little bit, you know, and, and, and really focused on the writing. And I find that in the way the narrative works and the way, you know, we move through the story this time around. Sure. And the first two books, I think the book one is totally green. We talked about that. The second book, we see the maturity of the style. This third book is a writer who is just at the mastery of the of his craft. He knows how he wants to write. He knows the way in which he writes. And largely, he executes at a phenomenal level. Mm-hmm. At this point, I'm really willing to crown King as the wordslinger. He's oh, yes. full Definitely. wordslinger right now. Right. He's 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 you know, pumping on all cylinders. So firing on all cylinders. Oh my God. I'm the worst. (laughs) Who would say, I'm so sorry, dude, I do it all the time. I try to be clever. Yeah, I really do. We really shouldn't be clever. We should just stick to the facts and not try to be funny or clever or cute ever. Uh, First thing I'd like to point out, mm -hmm. the title of the book, the wastelands is significant. The title of the book harkens back to a era of Celtic and Anglo uh, mythology centered around the uh, a story called the Fisher King, which made its way into the Arthurian legends. And the basic gist of it is this. There is a king named the Fisher King whose body is deformed, and he can't actually be a king. All he can do is fish because he can't really walk anymore, so he just sits in a boat and fish and fishes. Because the king has been separated from his kingly duties, that the king's physical well-being is linked to the land, the land turns into a wasteland. Uh, Percival, on his quest for the Holy Grail, encounters the Fisher King while he's traveling through the wastelands. But in particular, in ancient and medieval Celtic, uh, Welsh, uh, ancient British mythology, there's always knights or warriors that have to travel these great wastes. I think when King calls it the wastelands, I, I would surmise that that is specifically calling back to the Fisher King, it's calling back to the original poem written in the Middle Ages about a character, Roland, on a quest that has to cross through the wastelands. And it grounds that, I think, in our transition into a fantasy narrative that we now have knights on a quest in a wasteland. And the quest for the Holy Grail that Percival is in can be seen as Roland in his quest for the tower. I think there's a direct link there 
that we are now much more mythologized. We're much more epicized. That's not a word. We are now in the, the journey. All of the beginning shit is done. Right. We have the team there on the quest. The, now they, there's no more getting who you need, getting where you need. You are at the start point of the quest. So with that, my question for you is, we've asked this the other two books. In book one of The Wastelands, the quest for the tower, what does the tower mean? Does it change? Is it different? We talked a lot about it being death. Right. I think it does change in this book. It becomes much more of a concrete place. It's no longer an idea. It's no longer a theory. It's no longer a pipe dream. You know, in this book, we learn about the path of the beam, all 12 of the beams that connect to the Dark Tower that hold the world together. Roland tells a beautiful story about it. I don't have the quote with me. <laughs> That's okay. We all read it. But it's, you know, it, it, this, this ancient idea that there are these 12 guardians of these 12 beams that hold the world together now feels more concrete to me and less like a fantasy that we're never going to get to. It's just an ideal that Roland's going to lose. It feels for real and it feels legitimate. And it feels now as a reader like, you know, I want to get to the Dark Tower because now there are people that I love and care about that are invested in this. I need to be invested in this as a reader. If I'm going to go on this journey, I need to be full bore about the Dark Tower. I totally agree. The, co the tower is no longer an abstract concept. It's a real place. Mm -hmm. It has a real guardian trying to guard people from the path. It's incredibly tangible. The path point. of the beam is visible. The characters can see it, mm -hmm. and they know all they have to do is follow this path, and they will get to the tower. Right. It's not a, it's not a matter of if. It's not a matter of maybe. If they stay alive and stay on the path of the beam. It's just a matter of when. It leads directly to the tower. Right. The tower is a place. It supports things called beams, these physical structures. What are beams? They hold up houses. They hold up buildings. Now we get the sense the tower is holding up this world and perchance all worlds. I don't think they settle that in this book, that it's about all worlds, but you get the sense that, yeah, everything links back to these beams in the tower. I think this is the first time we get the saying, all things serve the beam. Yeah, it is. All and, and things serve the tower. Right, and it's definitely, I mean, from Roland's perspective, you know, He's been on this journey for thousands of years. Well, presumably, that's at least what I think. You know, and the fact that he's getting closer, he can now see the beam as well. He knows he's on the path of this journey that he needs to be on. It makes reading it more enjoyable, even knowing where the beam leads to and what they're going to have to go through. Right in this moment, it, there's a lot of feel-good moments they're becoming a team. Susanna gets to do one of the two things she gets to do in this book. Um, and if I sound like I'm disappointed about it, I am. Because I think this is one of the places where I, I, I do feel like King missed an opportunity. But she starts the book off. You know, it's five weeks after the drawing of the three. Um, Eddie and Susanna are clearly in training to become gunslingers. And like you said earlier, Susanna's already there and she kills Shardik. So one of the 12 guardians is this giant mechanical bear. Uh, it's described to have a very large 
almost what looks like a satellite dish on its head. It has this gigantic alarm that goes off when they get near it. It sneezes maggots. It sneezes maggots. Its its brain is being eaten by gigantic maggots. It's fucked up. It's crazy. All right, real quick, before we transition into that, because that's really great, to me, the tower means it is the... It is now the Holy Grail. It is the relic. Mm -hmm. It is the object by which we can now have a path to go follow. It's why the quest exists. It's the quest for the Grail, which is why this book is called The Wastelands. And what does the Grail mean to those who quest for it? They're not really sure in the the questing nights of King Arthur. They're not really sure what it means to have and find the Grail. They just know they're on the quest for it. I feel very similar to the tower here. It doesn't have a definition. Um, If you're a fan of of Hitchcock, they may call it a little bit of a MacGuffin at this point. It's the thing that they're looking for, but really it's how they get there that matters. So I think the tower is very much a metaphor for the Holy Grail, which is to say it is a metaphor for knights on a quest. Mm -hmm. And we now have three knights on a quest for a tower or a Holy Grail, and you could supplement it out for anything, but we now feel like it's a real thing, it's a physical place, and it's where the knights are going, they need to get to their Grail. And in the Arthurian legend, the Grail is supposed to revitalize the king and bring life back to the land. Well, in a world that's moved on, it feels very much like getting to the tower will undo the damage and bring life back to this land. Or or we can certainly hope so. I mean, that's at least for Roland. And it also, in his perspective for me, it will bring Roland peace and it will finally end this, you know, lifelong journey for him. All right. So let's talk about the content we Mm -hmm. have in the beginning of this book. You mentioned it's been five weeks from the events of the last book. Mm -hmm. We have Roland. Roland is dealing with the consequence of having saved Jake by stopping Jack Mort from pushing him in book two. Right. This has created a paradox. Two different timelines have happened simultaneously where he did not let Jake fall in the the mountain and he did Mm -hmm. let Jake fall in the mountain. Mm -hmm. So the events of book one did happen with him and Jake and they also didn't. Because of this paradox, his literal psyche is splitting in two right. and he is slowly and assuredly going insane. Right. And he views both events as being true. Yes, It happened and it didn't happen. They both were true. Right. And while he's reconciling with this, I think one, they do a really good job. King does a really good job in making sure he knows how to temper the power of the gunslinger. Mm-hmm. Because if the gunslinger is has both of his hands and both of his guns and unlimited ammo, He's not going to really need... He doesn't need anybody. Eddie and Susanna. Not at all. So I love that there's constantly things to slow him, slow Roland down, Mm -hmm. which allows space for both Eddie and Susanna to grow as characters. And I think that's really smart. I think grounding this paradox into the consequences of the first two two books is a good way to, A, punish Roland for fucking letting Jake die. Right. Right. He doesn't get off. No. And then Nor should he. He also doesn't get off from stopping Jake from dying by no, killing Jack Moore. It does not absolve the very first crime. No, in fact, he's got to reconcile this. He At the l- same time. He has to bring these two parallel and paradoxical tracks together. Otherwise, he's going to go fucking mad. Right. I love that rhetorical device. Sure. I think that's 
fucking fantastic writing. Yeah, absolutely. I really do. Absolutely. And it's... The other piece of this, too, is that Roland, the more and more he has to rely on the quartet, the more and more he has to rely on Eddie and Susanna to do the things that he would otherwise be able to do himself, he shows major signs of his humanity. You know, in the first book in The Gunslinger, we don't see any of that. He's cold, he's calculated, he's a killer, he has all of his senses, whatever. He gets it done, kills an entire fucking town, we move on. Right. Then we get to the beginning of the second book, we lose his hand, you know, practically, he's got two fingers left. We lose a piece of his toe, we lose a piece of Roland, we get to this piece, he's cracking more jokes, he's laughing. We get to a point in time where Roland is fucking weeping. He sees the key and he weeps. It's like, whoa. So to me, as much as I want to see that killer instinct of Roland, it's really nice for him to also be his character being shaped as the other two are. Totally agree. Because he needs them, he can no longer be the lonely last night and he has to train these other two nights. Right. I think it's fucking brilliant. And that's one thing he never learned from court. Correct. He court, never learned how to rely on anyone else. Because court told him, you can't. You don't. Don't rely on anyone. That's not what gunslingers do. And so in a way, even though Roland has done this time in and time again, he does learn that piece of it that, well, I'm not going to be able to do this by myself. And I need these other two soon-to-be gunslingers. And to have to accept that in a relatively short amount of time, yeah, that's that takes a lot of willpower. That takes I, a lot of strength in totally a certain agree. way. Totally, totally agree. So Roland dealing with this paradox in this, he also has to open up to Eddie and Susanna in ways that he mm-hmm. was resident to in the first two books. To open up to anyone. He tells them what's happening. They do have to press him because they sense something is wrong. He doesn't just volunteer. Right. He's not there yet, but he's getting closer. But he does. And by telling them, he gets he starts getting incrementally better. Because after he tells them what he thinks is happening, that's when he throws the jawbone into the fire, which gives Eddie the vision of the rose and the key. Right. So there's a direct symbolic link to telling them, finally opening up what's happening, to throwing the jawbone. Ridding of his past. Which is the causal thing that then links Eddie to his vision. And it's in the fire, so the phoenix rises from the ashes. It's a new Roland. We get a new Eddie in this book. Absolutely. Eddie has a great line on page 26 in the very beginning. Beating heroin was child's play compared to beating your childhood. Love it. Love it. And Eddie is also kind of dealing with a paradox in, in his own way, symbolically, Eddie has the ghost of Henry living in his consciousness, constantly snipping at him, constantly berating him, constantly telling him, you're not good enough, you can't do it, you're a sissy. Henry is his version of the imposter syndrome. Absolutely right. I totally agree with you there. That is a smart, smart analysis. And Eddie, after seeing the vision of the jawbone, let's let's talk about some like raw symbolism. Sure. Things that I want to just throw out here and... What do you think they mean? One, the rose. Uh, the rose is... Why, why the rose? I, I think it's because a rose can grow in very harsh circumstances. It continues... It can grow in sand, I believe. I mean, roses are... They're tough. They are a beautiful flower. In fact, they're my favorite flower. 
If you look in the center of a rose, I mean, the way that he describes uh, the one vision that, that, that Jake has later on about like looking into the rose and, and seeing an entire universe, I mean, it represents the Dark Tower, right? But I think a rose is so iconic. A lot of people can con- connect to the beauty of a rose, the, the, the stability of a rose, the power of a rose, the literal smell, the intoxication of a rose. Now, th- this is biased because I fucking love roses, but I do think it has something to do with the lore of the tower, and it's the thing in our world that the tower is and represents. Interesting. So the rose is the thing in our world that the tower is and represents. Expand on that a little bit. Well, as I, I really like where you're going there. I just, I think roses are, you know what, let me take it this way. Roses are expensive, right? Roses are lauded. They're symbols of love. They're symbols of affection. They're symbols of, uh, uh, they're a gift. They're a symbol of devotion. They're beautiful. They're intoxicating, as I said. These are all things that the, that the ta- if the tower is everything, right, then it embodies the things that we or I, as the reader, the way I look at it, cherish, I cherish love and honor and devotion. I cherish beauty in art and being able to be a storyteller and make music. And I think that the, it, to me, that, that, those are the positive pieces of a tower. Now, again, roses are thorny. They hurt if you don't know how to prune them. They'll prick you. You know, they are, they're, un, they're unwieldy. They grow in gigantic bushes. They're not... They're not perfect. And so I feel that because we can connect to a rose, I don't know, as a human, I feel like I I connect to a rose. It's so symbolic of so many things throughout history. There's an entire war named after it. The War of the Roses. Right? I mean, it's, it's so iconic that in our world, as is in mid world, that's how iconic the Dark Tower is. I love where you're going with that. I'd add a little layer on top of it. There's, I, I agreed with everything that but you please, said. Please, please. 100%. The other layer that I would add is that a rose is also an inherently romantic symbol. Yeah. And a quest, a quest, a knight on a quest is a thing that comes out of medieval romance literature and storytelling. Definitely. So if the tower represents the, the holy grail, to me, the rose represents the romance of the knight on the quest. And what do these knights see on their way to the quest? They see fucking roses. Yep. Both Jake and Eddie see roses. Mm-hmm. And then the rose becomes the symbol that links of, you are on your way to the tower. How do you know you're correct? Mm-hmm. What are the divine symbols that are being placed in front of you that let you say, hey, you're on the right direction? For both Eddie and Jake, it's a fucking rose. That's the marker. In a weird way, you just, you just transitioned my brain into something. And it's a little dark. But, Do it. but the dark tower is not all beauty. It also represents death. And I think we're just tacking on the things that it represents. I don't think it loses from the first two books as we move on. I think it evolves. Great point. Totally great. And I will say that what are very popular uh, you know, flowers to give sometimes at funerals? Roses. Give roses. It's a symbol of death. 
And red is a color of blood. Yes. Which means, and rose, when it pricks you, you will bleed. Right. So there's a clear like linkage to blood and and death with the rose as well. Totally Within its agree. beauty. I mean, it's and and death can also be beautiful. It doesn't have to be negative all the time. So that's why I can start to believe that the Dark Tower is the nexus of everything because it embodies all of the emotions that connect us as humans. Great. Next thing I want to bring up. Jawbones. Why fucking jawbones? That's, you know, I, I think it's because of palaver. It's, you know, part of the jaw. It's part of what the conversation that Roland has to have, both with the first demon that he takes from and then from the man in black. I, to be completely honest, I don't have any historical reference to why it would be a jawbone. Yeah, I think it has to do with, in the Middle Ages... There was a huge movement to hold relics that had special spiritual Mm -hmm. significance and that had spiritual power. That if you had said relic, you could cure the sick. You could get visions of the future. Sure. And one of the most, the most powerful, powerful of relics were body parts of saints. So if you Mm -hmm. had the remains of a saint, if you had a bone from a saint, Mm -hmm. you would be able to access and channel the power of that saint. I feel like the the jawbone is a echo to that. I think you nailed it with palather. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is that I think it it ties back to the conversations that Roland has had with the two characters in which he takes the jawbones. Yep. And the power of words and also the power of the body to carry some magic with it. After you die, in particular, if you were a magical person in your life, that right. you can then harness the power of the jawbone. Because in the first three books, the jawbone has meant something. Sure. They're, they've been there. There's it's a, evolved. There's a jawbone that Roland uses in book one to defeat the Oracle. Mm-hmm. Then he takes the jawbone from the man in black and the end of book one, carries it throughout all of book two. All of it. And then in a beautiful moment, throws it in the fire, which gives another character a vision. And he doesn't even think about it. It, it almost catches Eddie and Susanna off guard. Roland just makes the decision then and there that this relic has served its purpose. It's time for it to go. Absolutely. He is incredibly skilled at that. I don't know. Roland is just, I, I am a person who is riddled with anxiety Definitely suffers from depression. I apologize all the time. And I think the one thing that I take from Roland that I really admire that like is that he is just able to take action. He's fucking confident. And especially in this book. And and I, I see a great deal of confidence when he starts to open up to Eddie and Susanna to kind of bring it back to the, to the beginning of this. And and just the fact that he throws that jawbone directly into the fire, thinks not of it, understands this is the next step in the quest. It's the next step we have to take and just trusts himself. I, I find that to be incredibly admirable. I love it too. Let me give you a quote that I think will bring this home for a moment. I love the quotes. Yeah. And this is, this is Eddie looking into the fire and seeing the rose from the fire of the jawbone. For a moment, a rose, a triumphant rose that might have bloomed in the dawn of this world's first day, a thing of depthless, timeless beauty. His eyes saw and his heart was open. It was as if all love and life had suddenly risen from Roland's dead artifact. It was there in the fire, 
burning out in triumph in some wonderful defiance, declaring that despair was a mirage and death a dream. The rose, he thought incoherently. First the key, then the rose. Behold, behold the opening of the way to the tower. As we reflect on this quote, a few things I want to point out. One, this is coming from the New York junkie. And he is thinking, behold, behold the opening the way to the tower. The, the language is epic. The language is that is a, of an epic poem. Mm-hmm. The language is that of a romantic medieval epic poem. I love that he uses this language in this moment. I love that it's Eddie that has this vision. The one who, like, language is kind of a joke to him. And I don't know about you, but I, I always see his, his queen's dialect. When he oh. does it, and I, it's, <laughs> same here. It's awesome. I, he- I hear him as, and I hear him like so obnoxiously. Mm. But another line I'd want to highlight: mm-hmm. it was as if all love in life had suddenly risen from Roland's dead artifact. Mm-hmm. There is a constant theme, in particular in ancient world thinking, that life and death and rebirth are linked in a perpetual cycle, and that through the act of death and sacrifice and for the spilling of blood by which life can then be reborn. From the dead artifact comes a new type of life. It comes the rose and a vision of the rose with the key. And because that it's an artifact of death, it gives Eddie the vision of life. It had to be a dead artifact in other ways. It wouldn't have worked if it was any other symbol unless it was a piece of a human body that needed to be burnt in order to show it. Which explains why Roland takes it. Absolutely. We questioned why Roland take, took that job on. Yeah, in the first book, it's fucking weird. Yeah, it's, it's totally weird. And now he tosses it in the fire and, you know, with death shows life to Eddie. It's, Ab- it's fucking beautiful. Absolutely. So we have Roland dealing with the paradox. We have Eddie dealing with the ghost of his brother. Eddie gets the vision and Eddie has to create the key and he has to carve it. And his, his quest is to carve this key. He doesn't know why. He saw it in the vision. And constantly he is doubting himself and constantly Henry is doubting him as well during this. And I think we've set up with both of these characters a really good introduction of where they're going, where this is ultimately headed. Eddie has to build this key. Eventually he realizes the key will help cure Roland's paradox. And he tries to hide from it for a very long time. You know, he he gets you know, seven eighths of it done. And it's just that little S curve at the end that he has to finish. And he's petrified of it. I mean, we get through, I don't know, 50 or 60 pages of him completely avoiding having to finish this, his own relic, his, his piece that he, he adds to this puzzle. And finally, when he does, when he, when he steps it up and, and just zones in and finishes that key to yet bring another life into the fold, it it's pretty powerful. I mean, Eddie has overcome some huge obstacles, heroin addiction, the loss of his brother. I mean, his fucking, you know, decapitated head. Now he's, he's seen the woman he loved become a third different person. Absolutely. And now all of a sudden he has the stress and, and the pressure of having to come through and create this key that he sees in the vision of a fire that no one else does, even though Roland knows he has to accomplish it. And uh, fuck, dude, I would run away from that. 
There's Absolutely. no way. All that pressure, it's up to me to bring this kid who you sacrificed, Roland. It's up to me to bring him here. That's a ton of pressure, man. Totally. That's, that to me, I don't know. That, that moment where Eddie has to finish that key spoke to me in ways. I, I have been in that situation where I'm afraid of having to finish the thing I need to finish because I don't want to say goodbye or I don't want all that pressure or, or what have you. And in Eddie, I just see him making leaps and bounds through this series, which is why I hearken back to him. He's my favorite character, if it's not obvious. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I, I see the way that King develops him and, and develops his character and the leaps and bounds that he has to take. I mean, by the end of this, I don't even think really of, of Eddie being a heroin addict anymore. No. By the time we get to the middle of this book, I'm, I, Eddie's beaten that monster. He is a new Eddie Dean. And the current monster is the shadow. He, so he has beat the addiction, but he's not beat the cause that got him to be an addict. To in Henry, with. absolutely. In Henry. Um, and But would I wouldn't want to let, I don't have any siblings, but if I did, I wouldn't want to let my brother go. That would be an incredibly different, difficult journey to have to go through. Even if your brother is a toxic human being who <laughs> right. turned you into a heroin addict, right. he's still your fucking brother. Exactly. Yeah. All right, let's talk a little bit about Susanna. You had mentioned earlier, and I do feel that in book one, Susanna gets the short end of the stick from a character development standpoint. Though Susanna is a very interesting and compelling character, she's clearly the best at shooting between her and Eddie, um, and she's learning very quickly. It is Susanna who is sitting on Roland's shoulders who shoots the satellite dish off of Shardik the bear, saving the entire quartet. An amazing piece of bravery and marksmanship. Unbelievable shot. She senses that something is wrong with Roland before Eddie. She knows what's up. She's incredibly smart, and she's an incredibly talented gunslinger. And she's wildly intuitive. I mean, she picks up on how these men feel much quicker than they do. And I think it's the one place that King serves her. It, it is. And ultimately, I wish Susanna had more to do in this book one. I wish there were more of it. We get a lot of chapters in Eddie's mind. We get a lot of chapters in Roland's mind. We get a few in Susanna's mind, but it feels like she is the afterthought. Right. I was just going to say, she feels like the afterthought, like we said in the last episode. And, and this is where my main frustration comes in, in this book series is that yet again, King has the opportunity to create a strong, in-depth, incredibly charismatic woman. And the second thing she gets to do other than killing a guardian is fuck a demon. Yeah. And yeah. And that's, I, I can't put it any, any lighter than that. I mean, she, she is forced to use her sexuality as a woman to hold off a demon while Eddie creates this beautiful moment in carving the key. So there is some context to that moment that I, I find, you know, as a man, I can connect, connect to that. It's a beautiful moment, but there is a, a sacrifice, a major and difficult sacrifice from a woman in order for Eddie to even have that moment. In particular, she has to call on her previous demon dead a walker in order to have the strength to defeat the, the demon in this sexual sense. Whereas the two man characters get to overcome 
right. their demons. Right. They get to reconcile with their past and the consequences. Detta, or pardon me, Susanna needs to call on Detta. She needs to call on her demon in order to defeat the demon, which I get that that makes sense from a, just an easy standpoint. It would have been much more satisfying if by virtue of her having sex with this demon, she finally gets to, she gets to defeat Detta. Right. Right. You know, like Detta is there, you know, in her trying to do, I I don't know. I don't know how to rewrite it. I'm not a writer. But the other thing is too, and we talked a little bit about this before we started recording this pod is that the fact that, you know, Susanna just is assumed to automatically become Eddie's wife. That was King's first purpose for her. And that's shitty. Right. It's not earned. It's finally starting to be earned through this book series. They're building a relation or he's building a relationship between the two of them. And there are, are moments where they, they are learning about each other. But like in the last book, Eddie just sees her for the first time, falls in love with her. And when she fucking defeats herself, she comes back and just, it's automatically assumed that they're married. She, it's not an active choice. It's, I mean, I believe she loves him. I, I'm not saying that, but I do think that as a convention, do they have to be married to be Cotet? Do they have to have a love story? Well, I think a theme that will prevail going forward is like, man, could do a little more Susanna. Uh, a lot more. You know, could do a little more. And, we're, I, like, and I just think that is one of the areas where, in particular, this book, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Absolutely. That Susanna has very little to do. And because she has very little to do, we don't get inside her head. And her maid, like the, the ceremony that brings Jake through has Jake, Roland, Eddie, all having to, you know, confront and overcome their demons. Right. Where it is, Susanna has to be, I'm just kind of over here with the demons. And I have to employ my demons. Yeah. I don't get to overcome them. I have to employ them so that the men in the group can overcome their demons. That being said, the scene written is so engaging. Oh, it absolutely. so interesting. Yeah, sure. And so much fun to read. But it is, it does deal her a little bit of the short stick. Absolutely. I'd like to, before we transition into Jake, the quote I'd like to read harkens back to a part in the first book, pardon me, in the early in book one, where they discuss the mythology around old star and old mother. These two stars that are very much like the North star here in our world that are used to like navigate and tell direction. And the myth is, is that both of these stars used to be married and then they got a divorce because old star wanted to bang another woman. And now they're in this perpetual state, which kind of locks the cosmology and astronomy of the world in place. So I wanted to say that before the quote, here it is. And I think this is one of the most beautiful passages from the entire first book. I'm sorry, book one, uh, book three of the Dark Tower. That night, after supper was eaten, Eddie took the gunslinger's knife from his belt and began to carve. The knife was amazingly sharp and seems never to lose its edge. Eddie worked slowly and carefully in the firelight, turning the chunk of ash this way and that in his hands, watching the curls of finger-grained wood rise ahead of his long, sure strokes. Susanna lay down, placed her hands behind her head, and looked up to the stars, wheeling slowly across the black sky. At the edge of the campsite, Roland stood beyond the glow of the fire and listened as the voices of madness rose once more in his aching, confused mind. There was a boy. 
There was no boy. Was. Wasn't. Was. He closed his eyes, cupped his aching forehead in one cold hand, and wondered how long it would be until he simply snapped like an overwound bowstring. Oh, Jake, he thought, where are you? Where are you? And above the three of them, Old Star and Old Mother rose into their appointed places and stared at each other across the starry ruins of their ancient broken marriage. And I thought that was a really good way to sum up where these three characters are. Sure. Roland losing his mind. Susanna just watching stars, wondering what the fuck are these two crazy people that I'm with. Eddie at work carving, but no one knows why. And there we have the broken marriage of the universe rolling on above them. That's awesome. Let's talk some Jake. That's great. Yeah, we can transition to Jake. I mean, it's interesting because book one is actually titled Jake Fear in a Handful of Dust, which does harken to the T.S. Eliot poem, The Wastelands. And there's a lot of that correlation in the book as well. So we do, we get to find out more about Jake now, which is great. We learn a little bit more about his reality and, and where he is. Uh, he has a coke addicted father who has anger issues, uh, and works for presumably a television network. He's a producer. So pretty high up. They have money. That's what I assume. He's, he's not definitely rich. Yeah. They're, they're well off. Um, his mother is pretty much on Valium most of the time and is, is disconnected. It's not connected to her child at all. I mean, in fact, Jake has a better relationship with essentially their maid than he does with his own parents, which is, which is fucked up and sad. It's telling that when he comes home after being truant and comes home bloody and beaten, that the parents can't have a conversation with him. He goes into the room and who do they send? They send the maid who brings him some food and then brings says, him his favorite meal. Yep. His, and, knows exactly how to talk to him. Knows just what to say to get Jake to calm down, you know, to, to, to really connect, to really have a conversation and his parents completely fail at that because they're wrapped up in their own world. They're into the idea of what a kid means to them rather than being into their son. Right. And right. it's really sad. And Jake is really smart. He, he, and for being a, you know, essentially a latchkey kid with no direction from his parents, he's got a decent head on his shoulders. He he knows how to get around New York City. He's, you know, I mean, he's absolutely privileged. He's a young white kid, you know, in the seventies in, in New York city, but, and he goes to a private school that his father went to, that his father's father went to blah, blah, blah. You know, in in an odd way, I'm glad you pointed that out because that does represent the elitism that there is in Jake. But let us think there is a parallel because Mm. Roland went to the school where his father went. Absolutely. It was for the elite. Absolutely. It was not for anyone and everyone. Right. I mean, Roland in Midworld at at his time was one of the most privileged people. I mean, his family, you know, Stephen DeShane was a respected, honored man as a gunslinger. I mean, they were the top of the, they were the top of the top. They were generals. You know, they were hand and fist with the government, with the way things ran. They were looked at as, as you know, figures of, of strength and figures of morality. And I think he does. I think Roland sees a lot of that in Jake. Absolutely. In many ways, they are have a parallel track. They have a father who is well-respected, but isn't known for being nurturing or caring. Mm-hmm. A mother 
who is not really there that they both care for and care about, but isn't 100% a big focus on their life. Right. Roland, from what we know in his past, he was really connected to the cook, the cook who taught him lots of things. What is Jake connected Good old to? Hacks. The the maid, the maid who brings him food. Right. They Roland. The one key difference is Roland has a core group of friends that they're very dedicated. Where Jake struggles to have friends. Right. Right. He's very much a loner. Jake is one hundred percent a loner. However, mm-hmm. Roland grows to be a loner. And even when Roland had friends, we get the sense he's always been a loner. And he's always been the leader. He's always been the one that that just has that natural instinct to step up. Absolutely. So I think we can understand Jake's childhood as a modern American in the 70s. He would be the Roland Deschain of his world from his privilege, from the way his father treats him. Right. I mean, the only thing that separates them is that Jake is not a killer. Correct. Jake is, he is not, that piece of Roland, they they do not share. And in fact... I think it it's one of the barriers between the two of them for you know that stops them from instant connection the second time around. I'd like to can I hone into a scene that I thought sure like popped out of this out of the pages to yeah, me please. and really like I started rethinking the character Jake and rethinking the book after this scene which I did not pick up on the first time mm. and I want to posit to you I may be overreaching a little bit. Jake has a scene where he is in Mrs. Avery's English class. Mrs. Avery is handing out uh, recommended summer reading and lecturing about it, while Jake is tormenting on the fact that his essay is a bunch of gibberish. It's a free-form poem, but Jake doesn't even know what that is, about Blaine the Auto and doorways and mid-world and, and hearkening to things that had happened in the Dark Tower and foreshadowing things that will happen in this book. Mm-hmm. And he's like, this is it. Once she reads this, she'll know that I'm insane while he's freaking out. And so Mrs. Avery's hands them two different books to read. The first is Lord of the Flies. And she calls it, quote, like a series of riddles within riddles. And this is a very good novel, one of the best written in the second half of the 20th century. So ask yourselves first, what is the symbolic significance of the conch shell? I kind of butchered that one a little bit. But she says, hey, it's about riddles within riddles. Jake later finds a book of riddles. Well, this is two things in Jake's world where riddles seem to be important. Mm -hmm. We talked about the jawbone as the symbol of talking. Riddles are spoken most of the time. So we're, we're talking about unpacking riddles. And then she says, ask yourself what the significance of the conch shell might be. I feel like King is asking us, what is the significance of these symbols? I think he's telling us through the character, Mrs. Avery, the things that you are seeing in this book are symbols. Mm-hmm. Think about what the symbols might be. Mm-hmm. This is not something that you should just read. And I think that's true. Like, why the Wastelands? It's a symbol of something. Mm-hmm. Why Shardick? Shardick is a callback to Watership Down. Right. You know, why all of these things? I think he's telling us, think about these things the way Mrs. Avery is asking these boys. And the conch shell, which represents in Lord of the Flies, if you've never read it, listeners, it's about a group of boys on an island that get stranded there. And the way that they all speak is they hand the conch shell, and who was ever holding the shell could speak. I read that as, what should the tower be? Mm. 
the tower, the ultimate voice of the universe. And when Jake first sees the roses, he hears a song. So I think there's a lot happening in there. Sure. The other book is Catch-22. And Catch-22, a darker book. And she says, if you like, as a comedy of the surreal is what she calls it. And what is the Dark Tower, if not a comedy of the surreal at this point? So I feel like in that scene, Mrs. Avery, in discussing this literature, is King signaling to us, think about this, meditate on this. It's a comedy of the surreal. What does that mean? Mm. And I think there's a lot happening in that scene. And meanwhile, Jake is, that entire scene is looking for a door because he wants to pass out of this world. Right. And she's literally saying it's about a riddle within a riddle. Mm. It's a comedy of the surreal. Not only is she saying yeah, that to us, sure. she's saying it to fucking Jake. Yeah, I didn't look at it like that at all, but it makes complete sense. I'm giving you all the tools because, well, this is getting ahead of us, but because the Dark Tower is a book. Mm. But we're getting ahead. That's that's further. Sure. But this to me is the first seed being planted of the metatextual of read these events as if you're reading a book. Sure. Sure. And I think that makes complete and total sense. All right. Well, I thought that was a fun scene worth dissecting there. Awesome. I mean, there's so much in, in the Jake and the Jake storyline. Well, it's two different things, right? We have him in, you know, I see it in two different ways. I see him at school and when he ditches school and then the piece where he goes to the haunted house in Dutch Hill. And that's when I think the story changes because it becomes, you know, Jake is getting closer and closer and closer to the door that he needs to get to, to his new reality, to meet with the quartet. He starts to feel it. He sees the rose in that abandoned, you know, I guess it's a construction site essentially. And hears the song is drawn to it, knows he needs to find the door and he starts on that journey, you know? Absolutely. The scene where he first sees the rose and then falls and cuts his head Ugh. was gripping. The faces in all of the like wild plants right. and bricks that start to pop up. He starts hearing all these voices. I mean, he, he hears angelic sounds where he's... Could you imagine seeing a kid in an abandoned lot, like right here on Franklin Street, that abandoned lot that's right down the street, just like looking at a rose incensed and then falling and cutting his and head open. <laughs> right. Like you, th you would think something's wrong with this kid. Oh yeah. I'd call 911. But, but in, in the sense of this world and where he's being attracted to it, it makes sense. It it's beautiful in a way. I was just as captivated as Jake was. Now the paradox that was created through Roland, not letting Jack Mort kill Jake do you think that is the like causal event in the universe that is trying to bring these roses to both? Or is this really about both of these characters, Jake and Roland, and their need to go on the path of the beam to find the tower? Would this play out every way this way? Like, in other words, is there a presence of fate linking Jake and Roland? Or is it a presence of like consequences and randomness that just brought them together? I... The cynical piece of me wants to say that it's random, but I don't think Roland would love Jake the way that he does time in and time again. If this wasn't fate, if the two of them, I think the two of them out of everyone out of Eddie, out of Susanna, 
out of Susan Delgado, out of Elaine, out of Cuthbert, out of all these people who have meant the most to Roland, I think Jake is the centerpiece. And I think that without Jake, he does not get to the Dark Tower. And I I just, I, I as much as I would like to say it would be random, because there's some poetic beauty in that, that it's completely random. No, each it's not. Well, we know Roland has done this time and time again. And I don't think he would love Jake as much as he does, even over Eddie and Susanna and makes it clear moving forward. Once Jake gets pulled through that door, Jake becomes Roland's primary focus. I totally agree with you. I do feel like there's an element of, if I dare, I say Ka that has linked Jake and Roland together. And I think when Jake is, he has a dream after he ditches school. And in that dream, he is talking to young Eddie And as he's talking to young Eddie, young Eddie is fading and fading away to the point where he is, you know, just a pair of eyes. Right. And the pair of eyes, which is Eddie speaking, past Eddie speaking to, well, past in Eddie's timeline, present Eddie in Jake's timeline, because this (laughs) shit gets fucking weird. (laughs) And is, is speaking to Jake. And he says to, he says to Jake, Because of the beam, the boy who is now only a pair of floating eyes replied, and because of the tower, in the end, all things, even the beams, serve the dark tower. Did you think you would be any different? Mm. And this ghost child of Eddie who is trying to give the information that Jake needs in order to find the haunted house, to use the key that he has found, to cross the threshold out of his world to mid-world, to bring with him the book of Blaine the Auto and the book of Riddles, which we both, which at this point in time, we don't know why he is drawn to those and what they mean. For him to do that, he has to realize all things serve the tower. Would you be any different? And it's interesting that you bring that up because it's almost like the audacity of Roland and Jake to think that they are different in whatever way they consider themselves to be different. Why would you not think that you serve the beam? Roland, why would you think that your story does not serve the Dark Tower? That you are somehow above it. By reaching it, you're going to become above it. Absolutely. Can one become above the Dark Tower? In the context of where we're at now in the narrative, the answer to that question is, if it's possible, if it's possible to be above fate, none of these characters are ready for it. They are not above fate at this point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They are serving the tower still at this point. Maybe in the course of this narrative, we will see where it goes that they can break out. And the hope is maybe that we can break out of serving the tower. But at the end of the day, they serve the tower still. Mm -hmm. And I also think it means there was another way when Roland let Jake die in the beginning There was another way that Roland didn't see, that he didn't know, Mm -hmm. that he could catch up to the man in black without letting Jake die. There was another way to serve the tower. Because if Ka says they have to be together, then there has to be a way for them to be together without Roland losing his soul on that path. And I think we get a foreshadow that there's got to be another way. Um, if all of this is doomed to repeat in the wheel of Ka, because Ka is a wheel, I don't think they've said that yet in the books. But if that is the case, I think the key for Roland is Jake. Oh, definitely. I totally believe that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's Jake is one of the ways that Roland learns about humanity and, and understands that 
he makes a bad choice in sacrificing Jake yeah, the first I, time around. I have a quote here. So when Roland is confronting Eddie, because Eddie is like, oh, I don't think I can finish the key. And Roland slaps him. Mm-hmm. And Roland, and then Eddie draws a gun, and Roland's just like, you either finish the key or kill me, dude. Right, and he, like, kill me now. Kill Ed. me now or finish the key. One of two things needs to happen. Make your choice, which it, whichever it's going to be, because mm-hmm. I'm tired of hearing your whining, essentially. Roland thinks to himself as he's doing this, Something else I've done in the name of the tower. My score grows ever longer. In the day when it will all have to be toddled up like a long-time drunkard's bill in an airhouse draws ever nearer. How will I ever pay? As he's confronting Eddie and humiliating Eddie, even if that's really what Eddie needs, and Eddie cries his pardon and says he's forgotten the face of his father and hands the gun back Mm -hmm. to him. Even though that's the lesson that Eddie needs to learn, Roland is like, here I am humiliating this person I love in the name of the tower. Again, how will I ever pay? And will he? You know, I mean, one of the interesting questions up until this point is that I remember thinking the first time around, oh, they're going to make it to the Dark Tower. Now the second time around, reading this, I'm like, you know, I don't know if they are. Like, knowing what I know, even now, in this point in the book, Roland Roland really surprises me sometimes in, in, in this book specifically. He's starting to change so much, and I think King tries to keep it understated because people like Eddie and Jake are making such big strides. King is trying to make strides with Susanna and not doing the greatest job. But I, I think with Roland, it, it's so understated that when he makes, Roland makes these small comments about things like that, he, you know, he, he having gigantic arc changes within his brain while at the same time conducting the thing that he's done time over, time over, time in, and time again. I, I don't know. I, I constantly ask myself, like, do they ever really get to the Dark Tower the way that Roland thinks He's going to pausing at the end of this book and trying to think of it. If it were my first time reading and assuming that it is, I think the clues are all there that everyone's going to die on the path to the tower and that Roland may get there, but lose his soul. And would it be worth it? And he's commented already that he knows that he will lose everyone. And including himself and many of like Eddie in particular realizes like, I'm probably going to die. But Susanna? it doesn't, and he, it doesn't matter. Eddie chooses to do it anyway because, like Roland, he is able to say, well, the world that I was born into and grew up in is no longer there, and I want to survive. He does in this book. Right. The second book, he's not on board. In this no. book, he start, he, once he's finally over heroin, once he's over the ghost of Henry— he finally realizes that, you know what? Even if I had the chance to go back, I'm not going to. He's got more to live for here. Because he wants to, he is now on the quest he's for the tower. He's got true love here. Absolutely. And he's got his uncle figure in Roland who loves him and is teaching him. I mean, Eddie has learned more in the last two months than he has in the short 19, 20 years of his life. Totally. 
And Susanna is completely into the quest too. Right. Susanna even admits that like, hey, if I went back to my where and when, I couldn't go with the man I love. No. That that would not work. No. And then in this weird way that she is free from this structural and systemic racism mm-hmm. in this world is a type of freedom that she has never had. Right. And she is into the quest. She is the one that takes up gunslinging the easiest. She's the one with the surest and truest shot between her and Eddie. And because of that, she is fully invested on this quest. And she never doubts it. She's the one person that really doesn't doubt Roland. I mean, she doesn't completely trust him yet. And rightfully so. I mean, they haven't spent a ton of time together. But there's no doubt in my mind, up until this point, King is telegraphing to us, Eddie and Suzanne are going to die. Without question. Jake's going to die. Without question. And Roland's going to... Roland is grappling with the fact that he's losing his soul. Right. I mean, he says it early on. You know, he, he fully admits it. And I think that's why <laughs> getting to know these characters is beautiful, but it also hurts a little the second it, time around. It does. It really does. In knowing how well... Because also the first time that I read the books... I'm also guessing about the world. Right. I'm also guessing about how does this world work? Are they really traveling in other dimensions? Maybe they're just traveling in other times. Maybe they're not dimensions that the the tower holds up, but it's just time and they're just hopping through time. Mm -hmm. And it's just the same world, our world in different times. Mm -hmm. Having read it all, I don't have those questions anymore. I know what it is. I know this is a multiverse and a story about multiverses and multiversal travel. Yeah, that's not confusing anymore. And I feel like I can focus on the characters this time around and their journey and what they're actually going through as opposed to like, wait, where the fuck are we? Hold on. When are we? Where are we? How do we get here? All those questions we know now and we're able to focus on, you know, the building of these characters, which is a lot of fun. It's a lot Absolutely. of Absolutely. it's been a lot of fun the second time around. I don't know about you. I mean, it's one thing we haven't talked about. We talk about it in the beginning, but I've I've come to really enjoy this book series much more because now I'm looking at it from a critical eye because we're talking about it each month. And so I, I I'm I am more invested inherently in the story, but I wouldn't say that oh, well, I'm going to keep reading this because we're doing this podcast. I want to keep reading this. I want to keep doing the podcast. And if it weren't for King's, his writing, his style, the characters that he's built, this gigantic universe. I mean, I applaud anybody that tries to fucking create an an entire universe and somehow makes it work. George R.R. Martin, J.K. Rowling, Stephen King, you know, you name it. Let me, can I ask you this? Sure. With Jake. Like, to wrap up Jake's character. Please. Let's talk a little bit about the haunted house. Sure. What do you think the haunted house? Why a haunted house? Why is Jake's obstacle a haunted house that he has to get through? Or is it a haunted house? Um, well, the legend is that it's haunted. Uh, clearly, there's a demon that inhabits this house. I think it's classic Stephen King. I actually think a kid having to defeat a haunted house... It's classic Stephen King. I actually want that. When I when I read that, I was like, yes, excellent. A little bit of horror, a little bit of strange, a little bit of what Stephen King knows in our reality. Whereas when we get to Midworld, time is moving at a different pace. Space is moving at a different pace. There are giant fucking robotic bears and shit like that all over the place. It's kind of nice that he has to go into a haunted house. 
in the middle of New York City, of all places. I love it, too. I, I totally agree. Not only New York City, he's in Brooklyn. But, yeah, total agreement. It is about classic Stephen King, classic horror. And I like the idea that if there is a demon in the world that hasn't moved on yet, that demon needs to be grounded in a physical place. That in Roland's world, since the world has moved on, the demons can float around. Mm. They can take different shapes and forms. They can show up at different like Stonehenge-like Celtic symbols where they can then manifest and do terrible things like they probably could in our world before there was civilization. But now here in the a world that hasn't moved on, they need to be linked somewhere and they are linked to this space. And that I like that the house literally starts to try to eat Jake and become this sort of monster. I love just little bits like Jake has the key and then he drops Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And then he has to like figure out how to get the key with the monster is like getting strength and steam right behind him. And I'm like suspense fucking amazing. Yeah. But it's not even just the suspense. I can literally picture it in my mind. The way that, that, that Stephen King paints the scene. Right. And I think that is absolutely brilliant. And I think Jake crossing that threshold and Susanna having sex with the demon and Eddie being able to carve the key and open the door is the emotional climax that can now finally bridge the paradox, make these two different parallel universes connect into one. And Roland promises to never let Jake die in the name of the tower, but it wouldn't be King if he doesn't also in Roland's mind be like, maybe I would. Well, that's the thing about Roland that there's this sense of reality with him. He has to be real with himself because as we've talked about before, he struggles with, I'm a killer and I'm a romantic. And as much as I want to follow the romantic at the end of the day, I will do whatever it takes to get to the tower. And And we will do whatever it takes to talk about it. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, I mean, it's true. And, and, I think Jake is a perfect example where we, even now we can see the signs that we're going to lose him again. That despite the fact that Roland knowing that he sacrificed Jake was the cause of the entire of his madness. It created all of the events that made the adventure of the first part of this book. And it is an amazing and fantastic. There's still a twinge of him being like, I might do it again. Right. Right. You know, like I love Jake and I'm now a whole human being. Jake is now a whole human being. I'm now reunited with my surrogate son who doesn't have a father that I now get to love and get to uh, nurture and I get to help grow and get to help teach. But At the end of the day, all things serve the tower. Why would you be any different? It's another cog in the wheel. I love it. All right. So Jake, one of my favorite, if not my favorite parts of the first half of this book. Sure. And now, so we have the Cotet. We're moving on to Ludd, which is really cool. We get into a brand new city. 
you know, we, we talked a little bit about, about Blaine, about, you know, the monorail, and we're going to learn a little bit more about him, which is really exciting. The only other thing I really wanted to bring up in this book, and this kind of harkens to, you know, the original intention of the Midnight Myth podcast, is that there's a lot of mythology in this book. We start to, you know, we've already talked about the, the Arth, you know, the Arthurian connection. We talked about the quest for the, the grail. We mentioned the guardians and the beam. And I, I wanted to talk just a little bit more about that because in this book, I don't think King dives into it nearly as much as he will moving forward. But I thought it was one of the most interesting pieces of the book. You know, we have 12 different beams. We have 12 different guardians. And if you'll permit me, I did look up and write down the combinations of them. Do it. So, uh, you know, it's it's almost kind of like how you tune a snare drum. They're connected. Each pin is connected. Or so we, like a clock. Or a clock. Or a wheel, if you will. So we have the bear and the turtle, the horse and the dog, the fish and the rat, the elephant and the wolf, the lion and the eagle, and the bat and the hare. So those are the kind of correlating beams. They're the two guardians that protect each end of the beams. And I thought some of the combinations were a little wild, honestly. I mean, I mean, bear and turtle, we've already had two, one literal mention and one figurative mention, which will become literal. And the other ones, the other pairings, we don't get into too many of them, but I thought they were really interesting. And the other thing I thought that was really interesting is that there is a corporation that gets named in this book, uh, we find out that Shardik is created by North Central Positronics Limited. And, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that to me, I don't know how you view this. And, I, and actually, let me pose it to you first before I answer. What do you think about the fact that we run into a mechanical beast? What is North Central Positronics to you? And, and what does that mean in this world? Oh man, big question. Opened up a whole new can of worms right at the end. I love it. One, I love the idea that there is a actual structure to the Dark Tower and the beams and that we get the sense that they work in unison and that they work together and that the beams support each other like two different poles on a watch or a wheel or a snare drum. I think that in general gives a coherent, easy, multiverse cosmology so it, it, this is the structure by which the multiverse works. We have these beams that penetrate all of it, and they all come back to the tower. And at the start of each beams, we have a guardian or rather an elemental force that protects it from harm. So I enjoy that, and I think that is very in keeping with the mythic, mythic and fantasy feel. As why a bear and a turtle and why these pairings... That's a little harder for me to pin down, in particular at this point. There's not a lot of textual analysis as to why it's a bear or a turtle or any of the others right now. We just simply don't know. The characters don't know. And King hasn't explained it to us. Mm -hmm. Clearly to me, North Central Positronics and the idea that Shardik the Guardian was built by the Old Ones is a linkage to both the spiritual and the technological. And I'm going to get a little meta here. There's an idea of a psychological archetype called the archetype archetype of the magician. 
And the archetype of a magician, it was developed by this guy, Gillette and Moore, these two psychologists, and they wrote about aspects of the male psyche. And they say that the age of technology is the age of magician because it deals with grasping and controlling reality and using reality to make miracles happen, things that we couldn't do out of the technological process. But the magician archetype also has a spiritual component, which is initiation and rites and healing and spiritual regeneration, that if you just focus on the technology part, the other part kind of crumbles and dies. Sure. Shardik the bear represents to me a sort of union of that. He is a piece of technology. He is a piece of biology. Right. He is susceptible to mechanical breakdown. He is susceptible to disease. He is malfunctioning on every level. He is the archetype of the magician gone completely awry. Mm. I also like the idea that it sounds like a very American company. And because it sounds like an American company, it makes us feel like we're in a version of America. Sure. A version of America in which there was a company that could develop these guardians that knew about the multiverse and wanted to protect it. And this is how they did it. Sure. And I I totally agree. And to me, while reading the series, a lot of these things, when we talk about the old world, the old ones, they're building technology. Later in this book, we'll learn about a piece that was built also by North Central Positronics. To me, it reminds me very much of us, that Stephen King, that we are the old ones. And and maybe not, not necessarily... Right now, 2019, but but maybe further along in the future with a little more, you know, but we've seen things. We've seen cloning. We've seen all kinds of of, of, of technological advances in, in, in streaming biology and technology together that it instantly made me think of like, you know, oh, this is right now. This is another piece of science fiction. This is just, of course, of course, there's a mechanical bear guarding the Dark Tower. And Roland's world is a world that's ended. There aren't systems and units of knowledge. There aren't institutions that train and teach people. There aren't these things. It's a it's a world that has ended. And all they have left are relics. And now we've learned that some of these relics function at a really high level. Right. And and Roland even says, I mean, he he goes, Well, I've known of these relics, but I've I've never seen them. I didn't think they were actually real. And if you encountered a forest with a gigantic bear. And the highest piece of technology you knew was a gun. At, at everything like that's an the, ancient revolver, by the way. Yes, like just. But most people get from point A to point B by walking. If you're lucky, you have a horse. <laughs> you know, like so. You know, if you're lucky, you have a horse. So technology has completely disappeared. Right. And you saw this bear that was huge. You would develop an entire mythology around this bear as Roland and his people have. Exactly. And, and I feel like Eddie sees it as, well, I've seen this in a movie before. You know, Susanna sees this. I've heard this. This sounds like war of the worlds. This sounds like something I've heard before. Yep. You know, so to me, it's almost like their reactions. I mean, they see this gigantic mechanical bear and it, it scares them, but nowhere near. Like I think of it like, fuck, I got to get the fuck out of here. I don't know about you, but I'm leaving now. And they're like, no, we'll just, we'll face this thing. No big deal. Roland's like, oh yeah, I, uh, I've heard about these in legends my entire existence, but never yeah, thought they exist. See that whirling hat? Shoot that. That should yeah, kill it. You're right. <laughs> yeah, just hit that satellite on its face. Yeah, absolutely. And I love it. I love that this world is now grounded in a mythology 
I love that there is enough, there's enough mystery and enough answers to make me want more, to make me want to dig more, right. to make me want to ask more questions like, what the fuck's up with the bear? Who's positronics? Like, what is all of this shit? Is the man in black really dead? What's going on with that piece of the story? Like, we have the cutet now, but what what's, uh, you know, what's in store for them as this journey goes on? The one thing I really do appreciate about King is that he has managed to make three completely separate books feel like a cohesive story because they're all three of them are wildly different. And they're, they're also different age, Stephen King with different experience, different level of success, success, different level of privilege. You know, like right now, Stephen King is cooking all, on all cylinders again. Damn it. I did it again. That's the second time in this podcast. I've done this. That is the second time he's firing on all on cylinders. All cylinders. <laughs> I love IPAs. I guess I've had one or two, but no, but the truth is, is I, I, this book does make me excited for more, even knowing what's going to happen. I feel like I've, I have, you know, dug up and found and examined so many more moments and little nuances in this book that I didn't the first time because, and we've talked about this because the first time around I was like, what's happening? Where are we? When are we? Who are these people? Who am I supposed to trust? Now it's like, oh, I'm on my second time of a thousand. Yep, absolutely. You know, I think that is a really great point. I think that's a really good point to end the podcast on. Yes. Um, I am so excited. We will be back as soon as time permits with the second half of our discussion on the wastelands. Um, as soon as we complete it. Give us a few weeks because Steve is a professional. He's also an actor. Um, I have a job and another yeah. podcast. You're also it's a professional running a podcast every week. But if you guys want more of this shit, buy us some t-shirts. Yo. Yeah. And listen, guys, and I will say this, you know, I, I, I do want to push Derek and Laurel because they do produce this on their own every single week. You know, they've set up the store that you see. They set up the website that you see. They are the people posting on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. I'm sharing everything on my own channels because I believe in them and what they're doing. So if you enjoy this podcast, please check out The Midnight Myth in and of itself. My wife streams it every day. Literally, I came home and walked in the door from work today, and she had one of the Game of Thrones episodes on. And check out the store because they've got some really cool merch some really tongue-in-cheek merch, buy a t-shirt, buy a mug. I mean, come on. We live in a consumer culture anyway. Help them out because you love this podcast. I love this podcast. As soon as payday comes, I'm buying my Wheel of Kyle t-shirt because I think it's amazing. And if you do support the podcast, please be, you know, be interactive. Tweet out to these guys. Tell them what you want to see because they take those things into consideration. And that's how things like the Wheel of Kyle were made, was made. Agreed. And uh, long days and pleasant nights. Long days and pleasant nights.